You're listening to the Economics Review Podcast with your host, Adi Golcha. From Congress to Wall Street and finance to philosophy, tune into the Economics Review to hear from world-leading experts on current events and cutting-edge research. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome back to the Economics Review. Our guest today is a visiting fellow at Stanford University's Hoover Institution and an award-winning, nationally syndicated foreign affairs columnist, author, and scholar. He's also a veritable legend in the world of journalism, covering the developments in Eastern Europe at the end of the 20th century, from the fall of the Berlin Wall to the Velvet Revolution in Prague. He was also president at the Warsaw Pact meeting uh, and covered the early phases of the Yugoslavian civil war and went to Afghanistan with the Soviets to cover the last stages of their military occupation and the rise of the Mujahideen. He's also the first second gentleman of California, um, married to Lieutenant Governor Ilani Kunalakis. Um, it's my great pleasure to welcome to the show, Dr. Marcus Kunalakis. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, it's my pleasure, Adi. Good to be with you today. So I mainly wanted to talk to you about the Russia-Ukraine crisis, but first I'd, uh, I'd like to ask you to tell us a bit about your background in journalism and your experiences covering the events surrounding the dissolution of the USSR. Uh, sure. Well, um, you know, you recall that, of course, the uh, events of the 1989 were really the first events uh, prior to the, the demise of the USSR, uh, in other words, the dissolution of the USSR in 1991. But in 1989, it really was a revolutionary year. And I had spent the year prior on a mid-career fellowship in journalism working in Germany. So my German was uh, was very good. And I had spent a lot of that year in Germany working uh, in the uh, television networks at ZDF in, in uh, Mainz, uh, which is outside of Frankfurt, Zweite uh, Deutsches Fernsehen, which is uh, the second news network, national news network. And then in uh, and then later on in Munich at the Süddeutsche Zeitung, which is one of the larger newspapers in uh, in Germany. And during that period, I'd spent just a significant amount of time in Eastern Europe, really getting to know a lot of the dissidents who were uh, fighting against the communist regimes. And that was in East Germany and in uh, Hungary in particular. I'd spent a fair amount of time in Czechoslovakia. And uh, of course, as events unfolded in 1989, and, and there were certainly monumental events, uh, many of which I was I was there to be an eyewitness to, uh, the one that probably stands out most to uh, Americans is the fall of the Berlin Wall. And being there, of course, was just uh, astounding to watch uh, really the men and women who had suffered for so many years in these captive nations, being able to finally breathe uh, the air of freedom and be able to traverse that wall into uh, into a free and uh, and, and uh, democratic um, West Germany. Um, so uh, there was a lot more that went on during that year in '89. I covered all of the revolutions, save for Poland. Uh, and eventually, in 1991, after having lived in Czechoslovakia for nearly two years in in Prague, uh, the uh, coup in Moscow hit in August of 1991. And I was uh, up in Moscow the following day uh, on the streets of Moscow at the barricades in front of the White House, uh, really witnessing what appeared to be also just uh, a moment where people were standing up to these military regimes and this and this outrageous uh, exertion of, of violent power. Uh, and uh, and of course, we all know, we all witness and watch uh, the dissolution of the Soviet Union on December 25th, 1991. And I was there for all of these things. Um, you know, what followed 
is uh, is now history. Uh, it's uh, although that history seems to be repeating itself in some ways. Um, but uh, but let's leave it at that. Unless you want to talk specifically about any of the other events or circumstances uh, of my career, uh, uh, and 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 most of this time I was working for Newsweek. But then when I got to Moscow, I was the NBC and Mutual News uh, Moscow bureau chief. Hi, I'm Mike, and I'm from the year 2183 in the Alpha Theta Epsilon 1.5 family of timelines. I'm Antonis, and I'm from the Tau Omicron Epsilon X2 universe. Mike and I are gliders, a type of intertemporal and multiversal communication specialist. Ever since we met in glider school, we've been communicating with people in different timelines and universes, connecting the dots between pasts, presents, and futures. That's also how we met Caitlin. That's me. I'm from 2030. Mike and Antonis helped me tell my story, and I stuck around for the adventure and to help tell yours. Join us for the Future Diaries podcast, where we talk to people across space and time about their lives. Some of them might even be from your universe. We'll talk to you in, in the, the future. future. Well, that is that is certainly an, an amazing background. Um, I just wanted to get an understanding of um, you know where where what, what you've done, some of the things in the past um, in Eastern Europe before I moved on. So, um, as many of you would probably be aware, um, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, um, which began almost a month ago. Um, has become stalled and not been quite the quick, decisive victory President Putin had hoped for. Um, so, Dr. Kunalakis, I wanted to start off by asking what the situation is looking like for Russia and why progress has been so slow. Well, I think that the uh, Putin, and I, and I really want to make clear that this really was a, a decision by Vladimir Putin. You know, we we witnessed his dressing down of his National Security Council so that they would be in accord and be complicit in his invasion plans. You know, the Russian people are innocent in this particular instance. They are really victims in many ways of the insanity uh, of this invasion, this, this un, uh, you know, this premeditated and, uh, and unjustified invasion of a sovereign nation next door. And so I, I think when you look at sort of the events as they've, as they've unfolded, we can, pretty much surmise that uh, Vladimir Putin has been surprised. I think his expectation was that following the fall of the Afghan government and the and the rise of the Taliban, um, we remember those horrific pictures uh, of people trying to flee the country, but all of those came after the president of the country, Ashraf Ghani, really got on a plane and left the country, abandoned his nation well before the Taliban had reached had reached uh, had reached Kabul. Um, that is not the case. Um, you know, that was not the case in um, in Ukraine. Instead of a president who was preparing to leave and, and get out with what he could, including his family, um, he instead not only rose to the occasion, not only inspired his people and his nation, but he's inspired the world. And this type of leadership is is really rather rare, you know. And so um, when you have someone who's put his life on the line and the life of his family on the line to defend his nation, it should not be surprising to those of us who've witnessed this type of bravery in the past, this type of leadership in the past, it should not be a surprise that that his people will follow. And so suddenly, uh, Russia, the Russian military, are confronted with citizens 
who are putting their bodies in front of tanks, who are, you know, fighting in the streets and fighting uh, in the countryside against this, you know, equivalent of a death star of a, of a military. Uh, they are outnumbered, they are outgunned, but they have way more heart and their, and their heart is in this fight because they are fighting for their homes. So I'd say that's the perhaps the biggest surprise uh, for Vladimir Putin and his expectation of just running over the nation and taking over the capital. Right. Um, and so we've all heard a, a lot of talk recently about Russia's escalate to de-escalate policy, which may entail the usage of a small nuclear weapon in the event that things continue to go poorly for Vladimir Putin. So in your view, is there any risk of a nuclear strike? And in the event that it should happen, um, is it more likely that we'd see a swift conclusion to the conflict or an escalation into full-scale nuclear war? Yeah, this is a whole new world, right? I mean, the, the world that we lived in prior to the invasion of Ukraine had a, had a doctrine, a nuclear doctrine that, that most nations really felt and, and everybody pretty much felt uh, was was the driving doctrine. It was the mutually assured destruction doctrine. It assumed that if there was a nuclear strike, uh, that nobody would, would initiate a nuclear strike because the repercussions and the response would be so devastating that it would be folly to, uh, to attempt or even threaten that type of a strike. What we're seeing now is that um, this is a whole new uh, era where right out the gate, essentially, I mean, it's, it was a matter of days that Vladimir Putin put his nuclear forces on alert and has threatened verbally to use, if not ICBMs, then tactical nuclear weapons. It's unclear what what is in his mind right now, but what isn't in his mind or what is in his rhetoric is the attempts to use this threat as a means by which he can draw a resolution and a capitulation from Ukraine and perhaps even an acquiescence uh, by uh, NATO nations and the European Union. That is not happening. And it doesn't seem like it's going to happen. So the second part of your question is what happens if he really does this? And by the way, it's not just nuclear weapons he's threatening. The the United States intelligence uh, and, and President Biden have said that he's preparing for chemical weapon strikes. Um, they're of a different nature than nuclear weapons. And we have, you know, different doctrines and different uh, international laws and norms that that sort of manage and, 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 and have a, we have a, a way by which we try to manage that weapon of mass destruction. But what happens? I mean, you're asking me an unknown, uh, something that's unknowable at this point, because it will depend on the type of weapon, where it's launched, what it attacks, how many casualties there are, and how we then decide on whether take that whether we, meaning we, the NATO nations or the European Union in, uh, in alignment with, with NATO, how what is a, a proportional response to that type of an attack? And let's, I mean, really, uh, Adi, the one thing I, I really want to emphasize here is let's hope this doesn't happen. But it has now opened a brand new can of worms in, in this question of deterrence and of, uh, of nuclear weapons. Um, I, I think it's, I want to mention one more thing, which I'm sure your listeners know because they're keen observers of the international scene. But, you know, Belarus, Kazakhstan, and Ukraine all used to have nuclear weapons. They gave them up at the end of the Soviet era during the 
as a result of something that was called the Budapest Memorandum, where they agreed to um, surrender their weapons to Russia so that they, in exchange for assurances that their um, borders and their territory would be sovereign and sacrosanct. Clearly, that wasn't the case. And I bet that those people in, or a number of them probably in um, Kiev, are ruining that decision. And so, um, you know, nuclear weapons are, are there's, there's they're their own category. They're the most destructive uh, weapons known to man. And uh, whenever we play with such dangerous fire, it's uh, unknowable what the response might be. Right. Um, so next, I wanted to ask you about the implications of this invasion for nuclear proliferation. So Russia's blatant breach of international law and state sovereignty um, has undoubtedly scared many former Soviet satellite nations, as well as other non-nuclear countries that have reason to believe that they too could face invasion given their lack of nuclear armament. So do you think that we'll see any other countries attempt to procure nuclear weapons in order to deter future invasions? And how will this invasion harm the U.S.'s goals to stop to, to prevent nuclear proliferation? So I, the short answer is yes. I think that anyone sitting in a capital uh, of, a, of a sovereign nation uh, that feels threatened, not merely by uh, Russia, but any other uh, large great power would likely be considering right now how to get to uh, to get to a, a deterrent, uh, a fearful deterrent like uh, nuclear weapons as soon as possible. And so uh, that's a bad thing. <laughs> you know, we wanted Ukraine to be a shining example of how non-proliferation worked, not a lost cause. And so anybody who's looking at this right now is going to be uh, reconsidering. Um, having said that, I think it's also uh, in the interest of the United States and of Western nations and, and also of other nuclear powers to uh, engage in non-proliferation, to try and work towards uh, keeping nations from achieving breakout uh, capacity. And so I think what you've seen, and uh, you know, I'm not sure when this is going to air, but um, you know, it is March 21st today, and um, I know that there is active negotiating going on with Iran to, in fact, prevent them from uh, from uh, further development of their nuclear weaponry. You know, it's, it may not be the exact same deal that we had prior to the Trump administration when uh, when the Obama administration had negotiated what we refer to as the JCPOA. But I think there is a real concerted effort right now to make sure that uh, Iran does not uh, achieve that capacity. The other countries we're worried about, of course, are North Korea. They already have the nuclear weapon. But but we also should worry about countries that, that haven't really talked about it that much, such as Saudi Arabia. You know, there is if part of the concern that we have, we, the United States, have is that um, if Iran were able to uh, achieve uh, this capacity, that Saudi Arabia would feel compelled to develop its own deterrent, nuclear deterrent. And that would create just all sorts of imbalances of power in the Middle East. So, um, so I hope that answers your question, at least as far as I can uh, tell you. But yes, the, the bad news is weapon, nuclear weapons are, are desirable, <laughs> and that's always been the case. But we want to make sure that they stay out of those other nations' hands and uh, ultimately uh, you know, are able to draw down those arsenals that exist in, in the nations that do have that capacity. 
Okay, um, so I, I also wanted to understand the implications um, of this invasion for former Soviet satellite states. So, um, in the event that the, this invasion, you know, turns around for for Putin and, and he does successfully manage to capture some Russian, uh, sorry, some Ukrainian territory or potentially even all of it, is there anything to deter um, President Putin from just walking into all all, all manner of um, former Soviet st- satellite states um, and and attempting to do the same thing, um, especially ones that have no treaty alliance or or are not members of NATO? Yes. Uh, oh, ones that are non-NATO nations. Um, yes. uh, well, so on the NATO nations, of course, uh, President Biden has made it very clear. You know, on the one hand, he made it clear that we were not, we, the United States, were not going to uh, send troops onto Ukrainian territory, but at the same time, uh, raised the bar for what a response, a better response would be triggered uh, instantaneously with any incursion into a NATO uh, nation. And so um, there can be no mistake uh, that uh, that an incursion in or an invasion in, in certain in any instance of a NATO nation, whether it be Poland or the Baltics, um, would uh, garner an immediate response from NATO, uh, direct response. Um, it's not unclear how it would happen, what what the military response would be, but but it has been essentially that the, he's uh, labeled that border sacred. The other nations, the less fortunate nations that are not members of NATO, um, have reason to fear. Um, I, I don't have an easy answer for you here because uh, it really is a question of whether or not this is on Vladimir Putin's radar screen, if it is a part of his plan? I mean, does he intend to go farther up down into the Black Sea? Should he be successful in Ukraine or whatever success it means, you know, burning down the village to save it or to uh, uh, to uh, achieve it, to uh, um, uh, make it a part of his empire? Um, there are a lot of nervous people in these countries that are non-NATO countries, and, and, I, and I fear for them, and I'm sure they fear for themselves right now. So if, if you are one of the people sitting in the capital right now uh, of one of these um, former Soviet satellite states, um, ones that were e- either broke off from the Soviet Union after uh, 1991 or were, you know, um, under the, the uh, under Moscow's sphere of influence um, is and uh, are not fortunate enough to be part of NATO. Um, it, it, what what exactly should they be? Is there anything that they could be doing at the moment um, to to reduce the likelihood that Putin comes for them next? Um, or you know, is there is there absolutely nothing they can do? Well, one extreme is that they could just capitulate, as um, as in Belarus. You know, when you look at Lukashenko, and you know, this is a guy who's been in power forever. I mean, he's I think the longest serving uh, European leader at this point. Um, you know, he basically saw that there was a challenge to his leadership, called on brother Russia and Vladimir Putin to come on in and help him. And now it's effectively a vassal state of Russia. Well, nobody, you know, other than a number of people, uh, you know, there weren't tanks rolling in. It was just uh, it was just a, a very effective uh, movement of Soviet special forces into uh, into Belarus, uh, arresting and injuring and uh, doing violence on those in in uh, opposition to Lukashenko. And suddenly they're a vassal state. We saw something similar almost happen in Kazakhstan, uh, where again, there were demonstrations against the government and their, uh, their response was to call on brother Russia for support. It came in the form of a, a uh, 
so-called uh, grouping of uh, other nations uh, so that it wasn't purely Russian forces, but it essentially was a, was a, a Putin effort. Um, and, um, and so that's, that's the one extreme, right? That you actually have these nations so fearful or ready to capitulate that they, they welcome uh, Russia's movement into their, uh, into their countries and maintain, to maintain the power structures uh, that are going to be challenged by those who demand a more democratic uh, outcome. I don't know what you do if you're a smaller nation. And, uh, you know, it, it is, um, I know what you do if you're someone like uh, Volodymyr Zelensky in the leadership, you stand up to the Russians and you fight and then you ask for international support and help. But um, but in this world now, which started three plus weeks ago, where uh, nations, great powers no longer consider international law or norms or the the uh, the sanctity of uh, international borders, um, anything goes. And and this is a very, very dangerous moment as the world order is being, you know, reshuffled. Okay, um, so I, I also wanted to to talk about Belarus. Uh, you mentioned it briefly, um, which is perhaps one of Russia's last loyal um, satellite states. So President Lukashenko, um, unarguably a tyrannical dictator, um, has received much international backlash given his ruthless methods and appears to have played a, a significant role in facilitating Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Uh, so if so, do you think um, the West has done enough with sanctions to deter or, or weaken Belarus um, as much as it has done with Russia? Well, Belarus, unlike uh, Russia, is not as uh, interdependent in the, it, it does not rely on its interdependence in the global marketplace. It doesn't really have much to trade with the, with the rest of the world. It is uh, as a much smaller country. It doesn't have the uh, natural energy resources that Russia has. And Russia, remember, is an 11 time zone nation. It's the largest landmass nation on earth. So they are. They have enormous um, wealth that is, uh, you know, within their with on their territory, uh, mainly commodities that are exploitable and which they do exploit and which they leverage and they weaponize, as we've seen uh, when it comes to their gas and oil uh, resources. Uh, they weaponize it against the West and try to undermine those Western nations that upon which uh, uh, which are dependent upon pipelines full of gas coming in to warm their homes and, and drive their industries. Um, Belarus doesn't have that type of leverage and also doesn't have that kind of vulnerability uh, to the international market and to the international system. And so um, it really is just, it's an unfortunate reality for, uh, for Belarusians. But um, Lukashenko has been very lucky in that he's been able to just um, su suppress opposition oppress his people and depress his economy. So what's the end game for, for Putin here? How does, I mean, in, in your view, what is the most likelihood like likely um, ending to this? You know, that's probably the hardest question to ask anyone at this point. And, and, and I think that a lot of this is going to rely on a little bit on people who understand his psychology um, who have a sense of the history of Russia and maybe how he sees his role in historic role in in Russia, um, but uh, his options are you know limited. I mean, at this point, 
he has basically three options. He needs to remain in power. That's option number one. Go to prison for this criminal act. Or number three, you know, be killed, uh, which some have uh, suggested, you know, uh, would be a very positive outcome. Um, but none of it, but but that would have to be that would have to occur uh, domestically. It would have to be something that the Russian people or maybe Russian elites or potentially a palace coup uh, to remove or or imprison. Um, Putin at this point, given the losses and given the fact that he's turned his beautiful country into a pariah state in the international system. I mean, you know, I lived in, in Russia for a year and uh, those those people are well educated. They come from a fine tradition of culture and music and poetry and literature and you name it. And to be subjected to this type of criminal behavior uh, is is just outlandish, and 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 you know, unfortunately, up until now, those who have tried to stand up to him, whether they be Navalny or or those uh, or others, either find themselves poisoned or imprisoned, or worse. And so, um, so that's one of the options, right? Is uh, domestic removal of of Putin. Uh, the other is perhaps. He, because he's been able to control the information system in Russia so effectively, shutting down news sources, et cetera, and parts of social media, he might be able to go to his people and claim a victory because they are less aware of the realities of this war right now. So, you know, if something were put on the table that he could then say, yeah, it's a victory, uh, and I'm going to go back home and say, you know, Luhansk and Donetsk are now a part of Russia independently or or however he would frame it. Um, that would give him at least some what what's often referred to in diplomacy as an off ramp from uh, from this ongoing devastation of of civilians and of, of uh, and, and this terrorist act against uh, civilian targets, whether they be shopping malls or theaters or schools. It is, uh, it is criminal. I, you know, he, he will face war crimes should, uh, should this war conclude um, without some form of negotiated uh, peace. And so finally, I wanted to talk to you about the economic impacts for Russia and the sanctions that have been implemented by Europe and the rest of the world. Um, we've seen several rounds of sanctions by almost every country, um, yet Putin appears unfazed despite Russia's economy absolutely tanking. Um, so, Dr. Kunalakis, in your opinion, how effective have the sanctions so far been? And is there anything else that has the potential to shorten or, or end the war, um, just short of total military intervention? Um well, the sanctions are having an effect. They are, you know, we've already we've already been getting reports of of shortages. Um, certainly, there are individuals who are now being uh, restricted in their movement. Um, uh, there, there's some rationing going on of certain goods. Um, this shows that that sanctions are are taking a bite, and uh, and many of those Russians who do have uh, international networks and, and uh, partners or or any type of uh, global awareness 
are knowledgeable enough to know that they too are now living in a state that is uh, shunned and uh, by the international community and that this economic um, penalty that they are uh, there that is being uh, put upon them by the international community at large uh, is not going away anytime soon. And so, um, so I think that that there is an awareness, and there is there is some pain being felt at this point at both the senior and the popular level. Having said that, uh, I also lived in a Russia where I, I learned that uh, Russians are are quite capable and willing to sacrifice um, enormous enormously um, when they feel that a cause is just. And so, what we don't know yet is. If the if Russia at a popular level recognizes this war as a just war, or recognizes the folly that it really is, and so if they see this as a just war, and a just war that is being um, promoted by their orth- their Russian Orthodox leadership, um, including their patriarch. Um, it may be that, in fact, they do not yet see it as folly. They may, in fact, see it as as just. And if that's the case, I think they're willing to endure an awful lot of hardship. Okay. Um, well, those are all the questions I have for you today. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Um, it, it's been a pleasure speaking with you. Pleasure's been mine, Adi. Thank you for the call and, and uh, all the best to your listeners. Thank you, everyone, for listening to the Economics Review. And as always, we'll be back soon with the latest.